sorry, the number you have dialed is not in service at this time. Am I the only one who thinks this is totally insane? Rob, we're fighting theological injustice here. They're not using just weights and measures. He said we have 50 listeners. I think he's being generous. Rage your Bible is interpreted by experts. Rob, are you as shocked as I am? It's nonsense. If you've given any money to this, you need to complain. You ask for your money back. I don't know about you, but I find this annoying. Uh, what up and shalom. Welcome to the Rob and Caleb show. My name is Caleb Hegg. And actually, I've given Rob Van Hoff the day off. He asked for a day off from the Rob and Caleb show, and I gave it to him. That's right. Um, so Rob is not with us. Never fear. I'm here for you. Uh, I want to say, first and foremost, what up and shalom to everybody listening. What up and shalom to everybody watching on YouTube. And if you're listening live, I hope you're in the chat room. You can find the chat room at trradio.com. Hover over the broadcast tab. Go down to the Rob and Caleb show. Once you click on that, you'll find the chat room down in the left-hand corner. Okay. Follow the steps from there. Uh, the Rob and Caleb show is brought to you by TorahResource.com. Go to TorahResource.com and find all sorts of free articles, uh, things to buy, things to get for free. Uh, we have all sorts of studies going on and uh, great things are happening. And actually, I should plug this real quick for anyone who, uh, who is interested. Uh, it, I think I've convinced all of the uh, all of the main teachers at Torah Resource. I actually shouldn't say that. Okay, so I've convinced Tim Hag, uh, uh, Rob Van Hoff, and then Gary Springer uh, to create uh, little short devotional videos, which are going to be put up on the website and going to be put up on my YouTube channel, and basically. Once a week, each one of those guys is going to give a short little devotional. So three times a week, you will be able to find a 10 minutes or less little video on uh, a given subject or topic. And I hope that that's going to start next week. So uh, tune in and and check it out either on uh, my YouTube channel or on tourresource.com. All right. That being said, I should say that uh, Gary Springer is our programmer today, as always. And I believe, even though Mark Randall is uh, out of the state, that he is still working on our chat room and working on our websites. So a big thank you to those guys for helping make the Rob and Caleb show possible. I know what you're all thinking right now. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, what in the world are we going to do? on the Rob and Caleb show without Rob present. Well, never fear, because I have scrambled around looking for a good topic, looking for something that I could do that would uh, be fairly uh, fun for everyone, but still would uh, would be interesting, okay? I think I found it for you all. And uh, <laughs> so, I, I should say that uh, normally on the Rob and Caleb show, we have a very strict policy about uh, having people on the show. A lot of the time we'll have my dad on the show. Uh, we've had guests before, and those have gone well. They've been fun. Uh, we've had a lot of people ask to come on this show, and we continue to deny people 
uh, coming onto this show. And uh, the reason why is just because uh, we don't want the Rob and Caleb show to become a platform uh, for people to uh, get up and muddy the waters and disagree with us on on things. That's what our Facebook uh, is for. That is what our uh, YouTube is for, that you can get on and disagree with us all you want. So, but today, I actually have a special treat. I have two guests with me today. Not one, but two. And so I guess I'll just dive right into it and introduce my guests, and then we'll get to the heart of why I have them on the show. Uh, they have co-authored a book together. The book is titled Impossible Love, and uh, it is by Dr. Craig Keener and Dr. Medine Keener. And let me tell you a little about, bit about them before uh, we actually get into the interview. Dr. Craig Keener has his PhD from Duke University and is a professor of the New Testament at Asbury Theological Seminary. He is especially known for his work as a New Testament scholar on Bible background. His popular level IVP Bible back, background commentary, New Testament, has sold over half a million copies. Dr. Keener was ordained in an African-American denomination, that is the National Baptist Convention in 1991, and for roughly a decade before moving to Wilmore, was one of the associate ministers at Enon Tabernacle Baptist Church, an African-American church in Philadelphia. Dr. Medine Moose, uh, I'm sorry, I'm going to say this wrong, Musunga Keener received her PhD from the University of Paris and is coordinator of family formation at Asbury Theological Seminary. She was a refugee for 18 months in her nation of the Congo, and together Craig and Medine work for ethnic re uh, reconciliation in the U.S. and Africa. I want to welcome my guests, Dr. Craig Keener and Dr. Medine Keener. The first thing I actually want to talk to, to, to you about, uh, Dr. Craig, is for you. Uh, before we get started, I, wanna, I, I saw a short video that, uh, where you described you're coming to uh, keep the Sabbath. And so if you wouldn't mind uh, for our audience, because I know that our audience uh, will, will enjoy hearing about that, can you talk a little bit about uh, your coming to a belief that you should be keeping the Sabbath? Sure. Um, although I, I should preface it by saying that um, the way I keep it, like, I mean, I, I, I'll do emails on the Sabbath and things like that, too. So I have an Orthodox Jewish friend who who uh, who says, ah, you keep the Sabbath like a Reformed Jew. <laughs> <laughs> well, you and me both, I think. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but anyway, um, I, you know, it's it's in it's in the Ten Commandments. I mean, it's it's uh, it's one of those things that has a death penalty for violation in the in the Torah. You know, usually when there's a death penalty for something, it's pretty serious that God really wants you to observe this commandment. But also, uh, I guess for me, it goes back initially to a Seventh-day Adventist who, who wrote in something to the local newspaper about uh, the, the uh, Sabbath is on Saturday throughout Scripture. It's never said to be changed in Scripture itself. And then... Uh, somebody else wrote in from another church, and I'll, I'll leave that one anonymous, but um, he said, no, uh, we're not under the law, therefore the Sabbath is on Sunday, which of course is the kind of argument for which the phrase non sequitur is created. <laughs> I mean, it just doesn't follow. Uh, and as I 
as I searched the scripture, I didn't see anywhere that it was changed. And also I was involved with the Messianic congregation. Uh, and so, you know, keeping the Sabbath uh, is, is a form of cultural identification. But I really got serious about it one day. I was, it actually was an article in Christianity Today about a case for quiet Saturdays many years ago. Actually, it was an old Christianity Today. I was just going through some old ones and realized, well, you know, I mean, it is biblical to keep to keep the Sabbath. And maybe which day it is is not as important as as that you do it. Uh, you know, it was, it was already there in creation. That's what really got my attention. It was in creation before the Torah. So, you know, I, I observe it Friday sundown to Saturday sundown. But the important thing is, well, I think the most important thing is that we we have a day of rest. And so I was in the middle of my doctoral work and I thought I can't really afford this, but I need to do it because it's commanded. And, you know, I had all this stress, but what I found was it, the Sabbath acted like a circuit breaker. You get all the stress from one week, then, you know, putting on the brakes, that felt stressful. But after a while, you know, I got into it and was able to rest. And the, the stress from one week didn't carry over to the next week. Uh, I did also have to learn how to rest enough to sleep properly at night on the other days of the week, but that was, that's another story. Uh, but it was, uh, it was a great discovery for me, and it's really, I think I've been more productive because I'm able to get the rest and, and the rejuvenation, the renewal that I, I need. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, thank you for that. I really appreciate it. And uh, so I want to move now. Uh, I'm going to tell a, a, short, a very short story myself on uh, how this interview actually kind of formated in the past week. Uh, I met Dr. Uh, Craig Keener in the book display at the SBL, at uh, this year's SBL in Atlanta, Georgia. And uh, I had seen him around the ETS and SBL before that. Uh, however, my father was uh, holding in his hand one of Dr. Keener's uh, one of the volumes of his massive axe commentary, uh, which uh, he ended up buying, and my and my father said, I said, I think that's actually Dr. Uh, Craig Keener right there. And so we, we stopped and we chatted with him. Originally, I wanted to do a interview on uh, Dr. Craig Keener's uh, work on axe. It's a four-volume work. It's over 4,000 pages. It is, uh, it is quite a, a uh, undertaking, not only to do uh, by one person, but also to read by one person. So uh, <laughs> I'm excited for that. And we actually uh, just received our, uh, my father just received his copy. And so it's here in the office. I'm sure I will reference it uh, many, many different times throughout my life. And uh, so thank you for your work on that. However, what caught our attention uh, from the very beginning was the dedication. And, uh, and so I, beforehand I had, uh, talked to Dr. Craig, uh, about doing an interview on tour resource radio. Obviously our, our normal interviews are not done during the Robin Caleb show, but since, uh, Rob took the week off, I decided it would be a great time to have him on. And he asked what book it was that I wanted to talk about. And after seeing the dedication to the to his Axe volume, I realized I wanted to interview him about his new book. And the new book is actually co-authored by Doctor by his wife, Doctor Medine uh, Keener. And uh, so uh, 
I, I guess I should give the, uh, the dedication, uh, read the dedication. To Dr. Medine uh, Masunga Keener, French and history professor, researcher in African and African-American women's history, and mentor to her students, former refugee in the Congo, my friend of many years, my colleague, and my beloved wife. So tell us about the new book that you have co-authored. The <laughs> problem of having two of us, uh, which one of us starts? Okay, okay. I'll make it easier. Uh, so, Medine, tell me a little bit about uh, the book itself. What's the name of the book? What's the, what's the general gist of the book? And what's the, uh, what's the thrust of the book? What's the underlying uh, message of the book? Okay. As I speak, uh, I think you can add in uh, things that I'm missing. But the, the title of the book is Impossible Love. Uh, it talks about our journey together, how we got together and uh, how God took us from so many different backgrounds and countries and continents uh, to come together as husband and wife. It talks a little bit about my journey as a war refugee and Craig's journey um, in his faith. So anything else you want to add? Yeah, the uh, she said it talks a little bit about the war, <laughs> the war refugee. Actually, that was the most, I thought it was the most exciting part of the book. So I, I had to edit like 40, 45% of the material out to make it short enough. So, um, <laughs> no, wait, wait, Dr. Keener, you had to edit something out? Uh, <laughs> I, after seeing your axe commentary, I don't know if I believe that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just playing. I'm, I'm, I'm playing with you. I'm sorry. They, 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 they made me make it shorter. So, <laughs> Um, but I, I said, no, I'm not going to cut out her war story. So um, she has blow-by-blow accounts of, of some of their narrow escapes because she actually was keeping a journal during that time, mm. including when she was a refugee for a year and a half. And, um, and so we could do it blow-by-blow. Blow. And even though I, I was writing it, you know, those parts are really... I just adjusted the English, you know, they're directly from her war journal. Mm -hmm. And then I, there's some things I went through too, like getting beaten on the streets, sharing my faith and that's exciting. Like that. I mean, but it didn't yeah. take as long as a year and a half. I mean, they, <laughs> they beat me and then they were done. <laughs> okay. So, so we're, we're talking a little bit about the Congo and, uh, and being a war refugee. I, I understand that you're, uh, Dr. Medine, you were a war refugee for 18 months in the Congo. You yeah. were, uh, not alone. You were with some family members as I understand it. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. Yes, and, correct. and what war, uh, give our, give our listeners just a little bit of a background of what war we're talking about. I know that there's been several wars in the Congo, and I know that there was actually the first major war and the second major war were close to each other. Uh, what time frame are we talking about? Okay, just, uh, first of all, just a clarification. There are two Congos in Africa. They oh, all okay. face each other. So That shows, that, that shows my, my, my ignorance on, on all this, <laughs> no, so I apologize. Uh, but there was war going on in what we call the Big Congo, or Congo-Kinshasa. And there was war going on in my country. It's the smaller Congo. It's Congo-Brazzaville. Uh, we were colonized by the French, and then Congo-Kinshasa uh, was colonized by Belgium. So for us, there was war that started around 1993 and then went until towards the end of the 90s. But in between, it stopped. The war I'm talking about started in 1997. That's the one. So between that time and 
when our war started, there were time of maybe two or three years of peace, quote unquote, peace, but with some pockets of violence here and there. And then war came again in 1997 um, until 2000, and 2000, until 2000. So, Okay. Yeah. And now you were a believer at this time, right? Yes. Okay. And, and were you raised in a, in a believing home or, or how yeah. did you, okay. So, and that's how you came to faith then? Yes. I was raised in a Christian home and um, my father and mother really uh, talked to us about Jesus. And through their faith, I came to faith in God, mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. getting, accepting God as my personal God, instead of being through my parents' faith. Yeah. Her, her parents were first-generation converts. Uh, of course, in, in her country, the Christian percentage went from like 2% to 89% in about 100 years. Oh, wow. So a lot, of, a lot of her parents' generation were first-generation converts. Um, I, I was converted from atheism. So um, you can see, when you read about the statistics about the decline of faith in the West and the rise of faith in Africa, Christian faith in Africa, uh, we kind of exemplify it, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> and so, do, uh, Dr. Craig, you, you came to faith out of, out of atheism. How old were you and how did that, how, what, what, was, what was that journey for you? How did that, how did that come about? <clears throat> you know, I, had, I, I guess I probably said I was an atheist as early as the age of nine. I remember deciding I didn't believe in life after death or um, just strict naturalism uh, everything could be explained without recourse to the hypothesis of a god. I thought I was really ignorant, but I, that's what I thought. And and then um, around 13, I started reading Plato, and realized I didn't agree with his arguments, but he brought up the point about the immortality of the soul, and it really got me thinking about eternity. You know, I I wasn't really sure that the soul was immortal, but if it if it wasn't if I was just an infinitesimal accident, life had no meaning. And it got me thinking. Anyway, I, I eventually began praying, God, if you're out there, or any God, if you're out there, please show yourself to me. And uh, realizing that no matter how far my intellect went, it couldn't, it couldn't get me to an infinite God since I was just finite. And uh, some fundamental Baptists stopped me on the street and uh, they, uh, I argued with them for about 45 minutes. Finally, I hit them with what I thought was the ultimate question because I'd only ever read one chapter in the Bible and that was Genesis 1. I said, if there's a God, where did the dinosaur bones come from? And they said, the devil put them there. So you ask a stupid question, you get a stupid answer. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, they, they weren't trained in apologetics, and they definitely were not trained in paleontology. But, <laughs> but they, you know, but they did give me the gospel, uh, you know, how, how, to, how to come to faith in Christ, how to, how to be saved from my sin. Mm. You know, so I argued with them. As it was, I, I, you know, when I heard their answer, I said, okay, I'll see you later. I'm not going to listen to this. And I started walking off, and they gently warned me I would, I would burn in hell forever. Um, you know, this is not normally the recommended way to share your faith with people, but, but it was the first time I'd actually heard the good news about how to be made right with God. And the Holy Spirit, who'd been at work 
really just worked me over. And within a couple hours, you know, I'd been asking for empirical evidence if there was a God, but he gave me the evidence of his presence. And it was so strong that I either had to accept him or reject him. He wasn't going to let me alone until I did one or the other. And I gave in and because uh, I, I didn't want to you know, not have another chance, you know. So um, that was the beginning of my Christian life. And did you go I, back to the? To did you go back to the to the to the men that you were speaking with and tell them that to the Baptists on the street, or do they have to find out in eternity? No. <laughs> a year later, uh, I was able to track them down. Nice. Uh, and and find them, and shared with them that I I'd become a believer, and that I also had um, led ten other people to the Lord that year. Wow. Wow. And and they were like, wow, you were one person we thought would never get saved. <laughs> <laughs> so the Lord, you know, the Lord knows it's worth it. Yeah. Okay. So I want to go back to to the book. We should say I should say this for our listeners: the book uh, "Impossible Love" is actually not going to be out yet. It's not out yet. It's not going to be out until April of 2016. So uh, the link that I've put in your show notes uh, for everyone who receives our show notes, the link that I put in there, you gotta wait. You can't order it right now. Uh, it's it's not out until April. So I actually have not. What's that? You can pre-order. Yes, pre-order the book. Um, so I actually have not read the book. So I'm, I'm, uh, which is a little bit different for me. Normally, when I'm when I'm uh, doing interviews, I try to, uh, you know, read the people's work and, and that kind of thing. But from the little that I know of, of your story uh, together, I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, I believe that you met, then you parted ways, but the Lord brought you back together. Can you mm -hmm. talk about how that, what happened? How'd you guys originally meet? All those kind of things. <laughs> Medine, go for it. It's always it's always interesting from a from a woman's perspective. All first. right, all right. Well, the first time I met Craig, um, it was at a meeting, um, University Christian Fellowship. Yeah, University. Um, and Craig was speaking, and I um, I just raised some questions, and he thought I was really uh, not really nice. <laughs> <laughs> so you disagreed with him. <laughs> but after that, we became friends. And I was I was in, at Duke University as an exchange student for about nine months, eight months and a half. And this was before the war, correct? Yeah, that was before the war. Mm -hmm. And so after that, uh, I went back. I went back to France where I was studying, and we corresponded. We talked about marriage a little bit. It didn't work out. And I went to Congo, uh, experienced war, and after war, we talked about marriage again. Yeah. And this time it worked. Yeah. So I came to the US. So but but during the during the war and during yeah. your time as a refugee, you still kept some form of, of contact with Dr. Craig, correct? I mean I uh, I, I heard a go ahead. During the war I didn't. Hmm. My last letter got to him before our city was burned. And for eighteen months he didn't know if I was alive or if I was dead. Uh, because we were out in in the forest, kind of running for our lives, trying to fend for ourselves and so on. So after that amount of time, we got back in touch. Hmm. Yes. What was yeah, that like for you, Dr. Craig? Yeah, what was that? Describe that time. Oh, that was the biggest, my biggest prayer request of all was uh, for her safety at that time. You know, I, I was always happy to get letters from my dear friend, Medine. But then I got this one letter from her. She said, uh, my, my cousin was just shot dead. My brother and father were nearly shot dead. 
And the troops, the rumor is that they're going to kill the intellectuals first, the educated people first. And so, you know, by the time her letter reached me, her town had already been ransacked. Mm. And she was in the forest. There was no way I could reach her. And for the next 18 months, that was my biggest prayer every day, was for her safety. In fact, I, I had a friend uh, who had some contacts in the military in another country. And he said that as a favor to him, he could, he could get them to go in and send in a military attaché force to rescue her. Well, my, my hopes jumped really high. And then, and then I was like, wait a minute. We don't know where she is. Exactly. <laughs> um, she's not going to leave without her family. If an attaché force goes in there during the war, some people are going to get killed. Yeah. You know, we're going to lose more people than we're going to help. And, you know, it just was utterly impractical. And I felt the Lord convict me. Uh, you were willing to trust in an attaché force, and you're not willing to put your trust in the Lord God of hosts. Mm -hmm. Wow. So... Uh, I want to talk a little bit uh, more about your time as a refugee, Dr. Bedeen. Uh, mm -hmm. it, it, it seems like a lot of people in those kind of, I mean, uh, trials like that, you know, I have uh, sisters from a war-torn country, and, uh, you know, I know people who have lost faith uh, because of, of those kind of things. Um, so was there a time you felt had, that God had abandoned you during that, or were you seeing the hand of God even in such a, like a horrific situation? I will say both. Um, <clears throat> towards the middle of the war, well, maybe close to the beginning, um, something happened to me. Well, that day was, I think, one of the worst days uh, for me. Our group uh, with my mom, aged mom, aged dad, my dad had had a stroke, so he was paralyzed. We were pushing him in a wheelbarrow. And all the other people, my siblings and um, niece, nephew, and the people over the cluster of people who stayed with us, we were running, moving from one village to another. And I knew the way, so I was leading them. But as I was walking, I was like, I don't understand, God, where are you? This is happening to us. We haven't done anything. We, I mean, we're not involved in politics and we don't know why these things are happening to us. And I was thinking to myself, I said, I'm not prideful, but God, I've been serving you. What did I do to deserve this? So I was really, really down. And I was carrying in the back my, uh, my son, David. I have been abandoned um, as... Um, a wife, and not by Craig. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but many women were abandoned in situations like that. So I was like, I, I did not understand. I didn't understand what was the purpose of this. And all the faith that I had, it felt, I felt like I was losing it. I didn't have anything. So as I was going, uh, leading this group of people, I was crying really loudly, sobbing. And because I knew the way, I was ahead of them, um, and the kids would say, are we there yet? I'm like, okay, you can come. I could turn. They would not see the tears from my eyes, but I can fake a smile and things like that. As I was walking, I was so much into myself that I didn't realize something was happening. I started to hear like someone humming. First of all, I didn't care about it, but then it started to bother me. I was like, 
we are hungry. It's very hot. We do not even have water. We don't know. I mean, when we'll get there. And somebody is really humming. How dare the person do that <laughs> in a situation like this? So I started to be very upset. But at the same time, I started to think, like, focus on the person. I realized the person was not humming. The person was singing. The person was singing a song that we sing at the church, but the words were all coming wrong. And then I realized the person singing was my son in my back. Of course, he was not walking. <laughs> he was being carried. And he was dancing and singing. I focused on the song. And the song said, we will overcome. We will overcome with God's strength. We will overcome. For me, it was like an awakening. I stood there and I said, it's true. I don't know if we're going to die or live. But if I die, I want to die in the Lord. Mm -hmm. I, want to, I want to trust in God. And if we live, I want, us, I want myself inside me to know that we will overcome wherever this is taking us. So... That became for me like a memory place. Even today, when things are really hard, I go back there. So to answer your question, yes, things were hard. And sometimes I lost hope, but God helped us. I realized that there were two routes in front of me. I can either go towards God and just let him help me, or I can go away from God and wallowing bitterness and self-pity, as I saw a lot of people do. So, mm -hmm. yeah, that's what happened to me. So it's, I know that, uh, and we're going to, I'm going to come back to you and talk to you a little bit about some, maybe uh, a story about, uh, you know, some of the miracles that you've seen in your life, because I've, I've watched several of your interviews, but I have a, a question for Craig now. Mm -hmm. uh, Dr. Craig, you wrote a book in 2011, again, another book, I apologize again that I have not read, <laughs> and I, I'm sorry for that, but it's titled Miracles, and uh, I believe that, the, that basically you look at uh, different cultures throughout the world, look at miracles uh, up through history and even into today, if I'm not mistaken, and then uh, make the case that the miracles that were happening in the apostolic scriptures or the New Testament uh, were, were genuine miracles. Am I correct in assuming that? Yes. Okay. So uh, from from a snippet that I grabbed off of the you uh, off of the uh, uh, the Google description of the book, it says, uh, and I'm quoting here. It says, Keener suggests that many miracle accounts throughout history and from contemporary times are best explained as genuine divine acts, lending credence to the biblical miracle reports. Okay. So my question is this: How much did your wife's life and story influence the writing of that book? The, the book actually started as a footnote in my acts commentary. <laughs> um, because, you know, uh, because some people had said, well, these accounts, you know, when you get to miracle accounts, they have to be legendary because, you know, these things would develop only over the course of generations. And I'm like, uh, we know that's not true. I mean, mm -hmm. we know people who have eyewitness accounts of these things. You may not believe that it's a divine action, but you can't deny that people experience these things. And so I was just going to get, you know, cite a few books that summarized a whole lot of these. And initially I didn't find them and I was, you know, giving different accounts and then, you know, the footnote grew and grew and, you know, now it's 1100 pages. And uh, if, if they hadn't hurried up and published it, it would be even longer because I keep getting material. But, um, but 
one thing that was really a turning point for me, I was researching these, you know, getting people's accounts of them. Uh, and sometimes I was approaching them with, you know, a bit of scholarly skepticism. I mean, in principle, I believed in miracles, but, um, you know, I was trying to use the minimalist approach of scholarship and, you know, it somehow it got down inside of me. And so, uh, there, but then there were these accounts of people being raised from the dead and so on. And, you know, I was, I was approaching them kind of like, how do we know this or that? And, uh, Medin had told me about something, uh, but when we went to Congo, uh, she helped me to interview the witness in one of these cases. Um, it was uh, uh, Antoinette Malambe told me about her uh, daughter when she was about two years old. She cried out that she was bitten by a snake and there was no medical help in the, in the village. You know, she, got to her, she got to her daughter. Her daughter wasn't breathing. Um, so since there was no medical help, she strapped the child to her back. She ran to a nearby village where a family friend, um, Coco Ngoma Moise, was doing ministry. And Coco Moise prayed for the child, and she started breathing again. So I, I asked, how long was it between the time that you noticed she wasn't breathing and the time that Coco Moise prayed for her? And she had to stop and she hadn't really thought about it. She had to stop and calculate the distance between the villages roughly. And she said it was about three hours. Hmm. Now, of course, you know, six minutes with no oxygen, irreparable brain damage. But uh, Therese, uh, the daughter, is now an adult. She's finished a master's degree. You know, she had no brain damage at all. And this really got to me because this person that was interviewing, Antoinette Malambe, is my mother-in-law. Hmm. And Therese is my sister-in-law. <laughs> and, um, and not to doubt one's mother-in-law, but we also confirmed the account with Coco Moise, <laughs> who was the <laughs> other, other witness. And so um, uh, that was kind of a turning point after which I approached the accounts with a lot less skepticism and a lot more uh, confidence, uh, as there were other people that I knew and trusted who had accounts like this. I mean, that's besides the medical documentation in some of the cases in the West where we have more of that, but um, eyewitnesses that I knew and trusted. So, but, uh, so uh, it started as a footnote, but do, <laughs> I, I, now I know that you went to the Congo. Was it specifically for this book that you and your wife went to the Congo? Back to the Congo, I should say for her? Um, it was, it was one thing we were doing when we were in Congo, but actually we went back because, uh, at that point, because Medine's father was, was ill. Mm -hmm. And what's it like, uh, Dr. Medine, what's it like to go back to the Congo now, now that you've, uh, you know, experienced a war in that land and, uh, I mean, is it still feel like home or is there, you know, is it uneasy to go back? Oh no, it feels like home. Mm -hmm. My family is there. Um, and it just brings back good memories, not memories of war, but memories of before war, mm -hmm. of my childhood, my me being a youth, and so on. But it's also sometimes uneasy, especially when I'm walking in the street and I'm surrounded by a lot of military. Um, for me, when I am in the Congo, 
uh, a soldier or somebody in the, in the military always evokes ideas and thoughts of feelings of fear because of what went through war. So I guess I have mixed feelings when I go back home, but the feelings of joy, they are always above uh, the fear and so on. And for, for you, Dr. King, uh, Dr. Craig, what, uh, was the first time that you went to the Congo, was it after you were married? Yes. And what was that experience like to go to the Congo for the first time and see, I mean, you've heard these stories from your wife now, and now you're going and seeing the places and the, and the people that she's, that she's told you about. What was that like? I've spent about a year in Africa altogether, but it was mainly in other parts of Africa. And it was really, um, it was really, really precious after hearing her stories to be able to see the sites. And I could see, oh, that's how this fits together and so on. Uh, there's an ancient uh, Greek historian named Polybius who said historians should always go see the sites that they write about so they can see how things fit together. Well, in, in this case, at least, <laughs> it turned out that was good advice because uh, she had told me about you know where a, a bullet had been fired from and went through their, through their window and into their father's chair right after he'd gotten up out of it. This was before they fled. And, you know, I could see the the place where it had been fired from. I could see the, you know, well, the ruins of the house. Their house was completely destroyed. Uh, I say completely unusable. Uh, just some of the walls are still there. Um, but, yeah, and, and, and to be able to see the, the places where different things happened and uh, be, be with the family also, and, and they're, uh, they're chiming in, you know, is, is I'm saying, oh, this is the place where this happened, and they're and they're giving me more details mm -hmm. uh, about it. And so, uh, you know, as I said, we had more than enough material for the book. I had to I had to <laughs> actually edit a lot out. Mm -hmm. So, uh, Dr. Medine, we have talked about uh, we've talked about miracles. Now we've talked about the writing of of Dr. Craig's book on mm -hmm. miracles, him seeing your your home. So, is there when when we when you think about miracles in your own life and, and some of the things that you've seen, some of the things that you've gone through, is there any one or two specific things that come to your mind in terms of stories or miracles that you've seen that, you know, that, that's what sticks in the mind? Okay. I'll give you two. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> uh, not personal ones, but um, I can talk about my dad. My dad had um, a disease, like his mouth will will have um, sores all over. Uh, sometimes he have to go to the hospital because he couldn't swallow, he couldn't eat. And he prayed for so long for God to heal him. My dad had the gift of healing. He will pray for someone and the person will be healed. But he prayed for himself for so long, he was not healed. I mean, after he would take medicine, he'll be okay for six months or a year and then it will come back. And then um, one day he walked into um, a friend of ours, Ma Suzanne, and Ma Suzanne said, oh, Papa Jacques, why didn't you tell me that you have this terrible disease? And I said, oh, it's okay. It comes and goes. She said, no, we need to pray about it. She, so, the Lord had revealed it to her in a dream. She, she said, I had a dream and <laughs> this is what I saw. So she prayed for my dad and he didn't think anything about it because he had the beginning of the sores and... After a week, he realized that he didn't have any sores. Hmm. And he never had sores until he went to heaven. Hmm. He was completely healed hmm. and didn't need any medicine. Um, 
The other story is just uh, David during war. Children got sick a lot. David was very sick. His ears, I mean, you can see pus coming from his ears. I used to be afraid, just saying, this child would not hear anymore. But that was not the problem. When David was born, he had some type, I don't know what happened, but his eyes, they would be like white stuff coming out of his eyes. Pus. And the doctor said, well, you know what? This child would need medicine for all his life. And then working. I didn't have money to buy any medicine, and we tried so many different things. We just let it go. My sister one day mixed some uh, whatever she found, this leaf and that leaf, and prayed and put it on David's eye, and then we forgot about it. But as we went through war, David's eyes were clear, and he never had any pass. And David is 20. I mean, he's 18. 18. <laughs> wow, he will be like, oh. Anyway, <laughs> David is 18. I mean, he wears glasses like all of us, but he doesn't, the Lord completely healed him from, mm. from that disease. Mm. So, mm-hmm. yeah. when, when I throw things in, um, keep in mind, Medin knows five languages. So sometimes. <laughs> uh, but do, do, do you want to tell about uh, your brother's, Emmanuel's escape in the car? Or do you want me to tell her? Okay, that's fine. Um, <laughs> She she had been really sick with malaria, and they were they were able to get just one person out, and so they th- this was uh, in Brazzaville, uh, the the first time she had to escape war, uh, it was before it came to their hometown, and she was uh, she was very sick. That's when she was pregnant with David. Uh, the the uh, the guy who abandoned her turned out that he was actually a bigamist, so they weren't even. But anyway, she didn't know all that at that point. But she she was um, they they went to the airport, and it turned out that there were no seats left on the the last flight out of Brazzaville, and and they knew that it would be really hard to flee with her that sick. Mm. But um, the the Lord made it so that she was able to get on that flight. But meanwhile, her brother. Uh, was driving one of the two empty cars back from the airport, and the guy in front said, "Don't, don't lose me, or you're dead," because he was the only one who knew the passwords for both sides of the of the war. And so when they were uh, on this this boulevard, there's there's shooting from both sides of the boulevard, and the car that he's driving stalls in the middle of the road. And the other guy, he had to drive on because he didn't want to get shot either. So here's here's Emmanuel in the middle of the, the middle of the road, turning the key in the ignition over and over, and just praying, Lord, Lord, please make this car start. Uh, and finally, it started. But now he has another problem. He gets to the he gets to all the checkpoints, and he doesn't know the password. But apparently, the guy had gone out in the head and you know said what was coming, and so they waved him through. Um, so he's, he's a professor now he's Mm -hmm. doing, doing well, Wow! but it was, there were a lot of close calls where, Mm. and by the way, that car never ran again. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, Dr. Craig, your normal books, I know we've talked a little bit about you editing this, this work now that you co-authored and and whatnot, but your normal works are obviously more of a scholarly nature, uh, a lot of footnotes, uh, commentaries, those kind of things. Um, and this book seems to have a different tone to it, obviously, and, yes. uh, and, and for good reason. 
what was it what was it like what was the difference between uh your normal writing style writing for an academic scholarly world and now shifting gears a little bit did you like it more did you like it less was it just a completely different experience talk about that just a little bit i think i liked it maybe i liked it more <laughs> uh, i was able to share more of my heart um on the other hand i've written both popular level works, uh, you know, that are well, like the the Bible background commentary is is on a more popular level, not so much of a, a scholarly level. And while the first time I wrote it, it was all right. When I went back and revised it, and I was working on there's going to be a study Bible called the Cultural Background Study Bible. When I was working on that, it seemed to me kind of tedious because. I, I had all this information, and I just had to um, just summarize it, and I couldn't put in the documentation and so on. And I realized I really like writing the scholarly stuff. I, I like doing something that hasn't been done before. I don't like just doing what's already been done. I don't, I don't want to write something that just competes with what somebody else has done well enough. You know, Just use what's already there. A life is too short to waste it. But, but, you know, invest it for the kingdom. And, you know, that's why I did the four-volume Acts commentary. I, have, I had all this information that had never been published before, so I wanted to, to make it available. Um, it's different when I preach. You know, I can just, uh, you know, I, I want to connect it with where people are at. But when I'm writing the, when I'm writing something, I don't want to, I don't like duplicating what's already there. I, I, I like doing the documentation and so on, mm -hmm. especially for commentaries. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not the most organized person, and commentaries are great because I don't have to figure out how to organize it. I just follow the text. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so I know that you guys work together. Both of you work together uh, on certain things. I know that you both work at the, at the same uh, seminary together. Mm -hmm. And uh, so talk a little bit about the current work that you do. I know that you... Uh, uh, yeah, well, I'll, I'll just let you go for it. T talk about the current work that you do and uh, kind of some of the stuff that you do together. Um, you could tell about your work in well, the seminary. Yeah, I, at the seminary, I work in a department that's called community formation. So basically, we work with the students when they come to the seminary. We go from... Um, getting in touch with them before they even come to welcoming them, help, helping them settle and visiting them in case there is um, sickness, disease, births. Um, I also help with a small group of, uh, it's called ESL, where we have all the international spouses who come. The ESL is mainly for women because I don't have men to do it. Uh, but they come and a lot of them, know English uh, intellectually, but it's hard to speak. So we come together, um, uh, American women and international women, we, um, we work with that. We do a lot of things like sending off of students. Um, we are more involved with the student lives. Um, mm -hmm. Basically, yeah, that's, yeah. that's what I do here. They, they, they help nurture the families. So it's not just the student who's in the, in the program, but uh, and then the families get neglected. But here at Asbury, yeah. there's an emphasis on nurturing the families, yeah. too. Hmm. Yeah. 
absolutely. And, and Dr. Craig, you just finished a massive work on Acts. You co-authored <laughs> a book with your with your wife. Uh, are you working on more books now? I know that you've put out about 17, 18 books as it is, but are, are you working on more books now or are you just focusing on teaching? No, uh, I mean, I enjoy teaching, but I'm, uh, one book I'm actually in the process of indexing it now is called The Mind of the Spirit. Mm. It's it's on uh, Paul's emphasis on, on thinking, like the mind of Christ, renewing the mind, the mind of the spirit versus the mind of the flesh or the mindset of the flesh, um, uh, the corrupted mind, and, and, and so on, uh, just dealing with those kinds of uh, issues in Paul's letters. And uh, comparing how those themes were treated in contrasting often how those themes were treated in Stoic philosophy and other other ideas that were current in that day, you know, what's distinctive in, in Paul's treatment of that? And then also, um, the uh, I, I mentioned the, uh, I, I wrote the new, most of the New Testament notes for the Cultural Background Study Bible that's due out later in 2016, and also uh, Impossible Love is due out in 2016, and there's another book called Spirit Hermeneutics that might be out in 2016. Um, I was asked to to do that one. I thought that one would be really quick, and it took me a long time, um, but that one was, uh, they wanted me to write something on Pentecostal hermeneutics. I'm actually not ordained as a Pentecostal, but uh, experienced. Well, here's the irony. Medine has all the stories about the, you know, the raisings from the dead and stuff. She's a mainstream evangelical from Congo, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but I, I'm I'm ordained in a non-Pentecostal denomination, but I'm experientially Pentecostal. I, you know, um, pray in tongues and, and so on. I hope, anyway, you can edit that out if you're not allowed to talk about that. But no, no. <laughs> anyway, um, but I, I, so I was asked to write the book and I, and I thought about it and I thought about it and I said, you know, I don't think this, I don't think the hermeneutic or the interpretive approach needs to be distinctive for that. I think, you know, we just need to be biblically faithful. And yet there is something that the Pentecostal movement has taught much of the church about relying on the spirit. It's not that nobody talked about that before, but it's become a much more pervasive emphasis in the last century. And, and, and trying to see how the spirit makes a difference or should make a difference in how we read scripture and exploring that led me into uh, well including seeing how uh, Yeshua how Jesus and, and Paul and others in the in the New Testament interpret the Old Testament uh, how they apply the law and, and so on and and it you know, I, I'd emphasized a lot. I, I taught biblical interpretation a lot and taught about uh, the importance of background and context and, you know, the basic things. And then figured, okay, I'm handing them off to the homiletics professor. Let the preaching professor take them from there or the spiritual formation professor take them from there. And didn't go teach them about the stuff that I go on with in my own devotional life where I... Um, I, I want to hear the spirit in the text in terms of how I, how it applies to my life or how it applies to other people's lives. I mean, you do the exegesis first. Don't, don't dispense with that. That's a mistake I think too many people make in the name of the spirit. And they come up with things often contrary to what the spirit inspired the authors to say to begin with. 
Um, but but th th we don't just stop with with the exegesis and have a mental understanding of the text. We need to submit our lives to it. And anyway, so that's what that book's about. And then I'm going to be writing a commentary on Galatians for Cambridge and have some other projects uh, in process as well. Mm -hmm. Always busy. <laughs> Always busy, no doubt. Okay, so uh, before you, we're we're coming to the end of our time, but is there anything else that you'd like to talk about in ter in terms of the book, Impossible Love, uh, before before we go, or even uh, just your work? I know that you guys are uh, heading off uh, to India, I believe, uh, s soon. Is that true? He is. Well, uh, I'm waiting to see if. I got the visa or not, but we'll mm. see. <laughs> and then also, you know, at some points, I know our listeners uh, would love to uh, hear some some uh, questions answered on your commentary on Acts. Of course, it's going to take a little while to, uh, I mean, I, I can open it up and, and start asking questions right away. But that that is for a completely different interview, because uh, I'm sure that we could we could fill an hour without uh, without any problem uh, talking about your commentary on Acts. But uh, so uh, before we go, is there anything else that you'd like to say about Impossible Love or uh, just in general? In, in the book Impossible Love, um, things that I really have felt burning in my heart over the years that the Lord showed me in my life that were meant not just for me, but lessons that could be shared with the church, you know, that didn't, a commentary isn't really quite the right place to share that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, but as we're narrating our experience, I could, I could share some of those times as they were part of the experience and, um, but I guess one of the deepest things we learned through the experience that we went together in the book is it's is the faithfulness of God. Uh, sometimes even in the midst of our lack of faith, how how faithful God is. Um, like uh, the end of the well, the the message of the hiding place. You know what Betsy Ten Boom said: "There's no pit that God is not deeper still," and. We've just seen God's faithfulness over the mm -hmm. years. And, and I would just add that um, bad things happen. Yeah. Uh, God didn't send war to Congo. Man did. But in the midst of that, God was real and faithful and good to us. He provided in amazing ways. Mm. Yeah. When I look back, um, I don't think I would trade that. No. He blessed us even though it was hard. Hmm. So, yeah. I want to thank both my guests, Dr. Craig Keener and Dr. Medine Keener. And uh, thank you so much for the work that you both are doing for uh, the kingdom and uh, for the work that you've put out. And we uh, hope that the impossible love will not only further the kingdom, but will glorify our great God and Savior, Yeshua, the Messiah. Mm -hmm.